You're very welcome to the Firm and Fast Golf Podcast. I'm your host, Shane Darby. Today, we'll take a look at the development of the game of golf in Ireland. I'm very pleased to welcome Paul Rouse to the show to help with this exploration. Paul is a professor in the School of History at University College Dublin, where he lectures in the history of sport. During the course of the next 60 minutes, we will endeavour to delve into the primal nature of stick and ball games that pockmark the annals of human history. We look at the early days of Irish golf and how changes in society, politics, empire and independence, industrialization, war, gender, time and economic development converged over time to create a space for golf in Ireland. I'm very grateful to Paul for his time and expertise on this episode. We really do hope you enjoy the show. Many thanks for tuning in. Hi, Paul. You're very welcome to the Firm and Fast Golf Podcast. Thanks a million, Shane. Thanks for being with us. For the benefit of listeners, perhaps you could give us an introduction to Professor Paul Rouse, historian, writer, broadcaster, and, of course, a very proud Offaly man. Um, I suppose you've done it there. Um, I'm, I'm, uh, I'm, I work in UCD. I teach history in UCD. Um, I teach a little bit of modern Irish history and a little bit of history around um, how people use history in the present to, to they invent their own histories for the sake of their own politics or to make money. And I also teach sports history. So I teach a big second year module to students on the origins and development of the modern sporting world and in a global context. Basically, why do we play the sports we play in the way that we play them? Excellent. Well, look, it's taken us a while to schedule this chat as you've been on your travels with a Fulbright scholarship to New York over the course of the last academic year. How'd you get on in New York and how did you get that opportunity? Uh, I was really lucky. Um, I went for a Fulbright scholarship and was fortunate enough to be chosen. And I'm incredibly grateful to the people in Fulbright for for giving me the chance. And I got to spend time in New York. I'd only been in New York previously to play um, a Gaelic football match in the Bronx. Uh, I was a flying visit for a weekend and it was um, entirely different than this time. So I got to I got to live in Astoria, which is right beside Manhattan, and um, it was an amazing experience. I loved it. I loved it. I really loved it. Well, welcome back. I guess the, the winters are a little bit less uh, less clement over here, but maybe a little bit more rain. But it's certainly a little warmer anyway. In previous episodes with Roger McStravick and Stephen Proctor, we've explored how the game of golf developed in Scotland and subsequently seeped south of the border into England. As a starting point for today, perhaps we can recap on the primal nature and history of stick and ball games that permeate human history that ultimately led us to the utilization of the Lynxland near the sea for informal cross-country golf and onwards to the creation of the first 13 rules of golf drawn up by the Honourable Company of Edinburgh Golfers at Leith Lynx in 1744. Okay, so... I suppose the starting point from this is to think of what happens if you hand most children uh, a stick and uh, put a ball near it. The temptation to hit that ball with a stick is exceptionally common. I won't say it's universal. I won't say everybody does it, but the great majority of children will try and hit the ball with a stick unless they try to hit you with a stick as well, which is also part of most stick and ball games, though fortunately not golf, except in very rare 
um, very rare occasions, I suppose, which we probably shouldn't discuss. Um, but the reality of stick and ball games is that every society for which we have a meaningful record has some sort of a stick and ball game in terms of etchings that survive on walls or on in, in paintings, drawings, on, on sculptures, on vases. And this extends from China all the way around to Mesoamerica and the Aztec community and everything that happened um, over that world. So this idea of a stick and ball game basically taking two two essential forms. Um, a stick and ball game in which the object was to hit the ball to a target by a static person, number one, or number two, a stick and ball game in which the competitors are moving and the ball is moving. And the idea is to score a goal as in modern soccer of some shape or form like that. So this is something that is repeated time out of mind through the ages and it runs through every century for which we have a meaningful record of, of most cultures. And if you think about it, in an Irish context, what that means is going back to the earliest Irish poetry and, and the annals of the uh, late Christian period. You go through the medieval world again of documents constructed by Irish monks or in Brehan laws and so on. On true to the first newspapers in the 17th century, there is documented evidence of Irish people hitting a ball with a stick. And we've come to know that game as hurling, although there's a massive catch-all from these earlier texts in which all striking of a ball with a stick is referred to as hurling. And there is a kind of a, a need to parse that further, which really does need to be done. Um, there's a woman called Angie Gleason who looked at this previously and looked at the annals and spoke about this idea of how the modern version, modern name of hurling is projected backwards onto all stick and ball games. So the reality of it is we don't really know precisely what stick and ball game was being played in Ireland in the, the 10th century or in the 12th century or in the 13th century and so on. But we do know that at the very least, a game which we now know of hurling was passed through the ages. And if anybody wants to know about this, go to the National Museum of Ireland, uh, go to the exhibition on ancient stick and ball games and hurling, the origins of hurling, and look at the hurling balls that were pulled out of Irish bogs and carbon dated, the, elder, the oldest one coming from the 12th century and one, one existing for every century at least one for every century, right the way through to the 20th century. Similarly, the oldest Hurley was for, dated from a bog around 1600 in South Offaly. So this record of stick and ball play is there increasingly in the 1700s. They're in the newspapers. They're in accounts of travellers who come to Ireland, tourists who come and write diaries of what they see. It's there in court records and in court reports. Uh, and it's there in the books and in the drawings and the paintings that exist. So where does what has this got to do with golf? Obviously, this is a golf podcast. And there is slim evidence for early golf in Ireland. The first thing evidence that I can find is in the Faulkner's Dublin Journal, a newspaper uh, published in Dublin, which reported on the 23rd of October, 1762, 
that a golf club was in, in existence in Bray County Wicklow. And this is very interesting, I think. it's a, By the way, this is covered in early in a book by William Gibson called Early Irish Golf. Um, and he says that the person who led that club, alias the Boots, was a descendant of a Huguenot family, um, that the father was a church minister in, in, in Kerry. But the basic sense was that through the 1760s and 1770s, the commonage near Bray, that is to say that open land available for anybody to use from everything from grazing sheep to walking or doing whatever they wanted. It was, and I quote, famous for golf and that it was noted that it was it, it was played. Now, this should not be taken to understand. And I agree with you, by the way, that the, the development of golf in Ireland follows the English path rather than, rather than the Scottish one. This should not see Ireland as a point of origin for golf, as some people have said, nor should it see it as Ireland aping the Scottish model for development because it looks like that then fell away. Again, the more research may show something different, but from what we know at the moment, the limitations of our knowledge is that it's really after the famine that that the game that we would understand to be golf spread across uh, uh, into Ireland, um, initially in the Curragh and later elsewhere, and that it's really then properly from the 1880s that modern golf clubs begin to establish themselves. Having done a wee bit of research for the chat this evening, um, and you rightly point out sort of 1850s in terms of a, a starting position. And certainly I understand that in addition to, I guess it, it's predominantly a Scottish influence, obviously, originally, in terms of Scotland's gift, um, as, as the game game was known. Repeatedly called that in the newspapers and in people's records of from the time. Absolutely. And even if we think about uh, Charles Blair Macdonald's famous book, Scotland's Gift Golf, it just keeps yeah. keeps cropping up, shall we say. But if we look at the Scottish influence, as I said, both at the Curragh Camp, which would, was a was a garrison, I believe, for the Crimean War, and also the Jemison Whiskey Estate in Port Marnock. I believe John Jemison had a private golf course, which would be to the north of the current, actually it's on the site of the current Port Marnock Hotel and Golf Links, north of Port Marnock Golf Club itself. Yeah. Perhaps you can tell us a little bit a little bit about either Port Marnock or, or, or the Curragh. Yeah, I'll tell you a little bit about the Curragh, which is which is a really interesting point of sport in in the country. It, there had been a formally laid out racetrack for horses in the Curragh from the 1600s. There had been hurling matches written about by John Dunton, a traveller who had come to Ireland from England in the 1690s and early 1700s. There had been football matches played in the Curragh. The Curragh was a famous venue for sport, for all sport, because, of course, it was dry land, beautiful spongy turf, and ideal for the playing of any number of, of, of sports. And in terms of golf, what it also was, of course, was a major British military camp. Uh, and, and it's one where it's a kind of a real point of sporting innovation in Ireland. So the first real, really acknowledged modern sports day as in athletics meetings and weight throwing and all of that took place in the Curragh camp, organised by officers and men down in, in the Curragh camp in the 1850s. And people took the train down from Dublin to, to, to go to this sports day. And what this what, I, what I'm getting to in this is that the British military, the officers I'm talking about now, 
who were part of that elite group of men who came from Scotland, some of them, because Scottish influence in the British army was enormous. Scottish recruitment across the empire was enormous. And they brought with them this world of sports spread around the empire. And if you want to understand, think of another stick and ball game, which was polo, which was spotted in India by British army officers who turned it into and codified it in the modern way, organized the club, set down rules for it, brought it back to England, to the Hurlingham Club, where it became, you know, really prestigious, and then spread from that through this network of trade and of officers around the world, as far south as Argentina, but also onto every continent and became a sport associated with the sport of riches. So there's a tried and trusted network for the dispersal of forms of sport around the world and it involves the fact that the British Empire was the largest empire the world had ever known by the second half of the 19th century. And this played a role in the spread of golf into Ireland in the Curra at a military camp where holes were laid down by officers from Scotland or from England who were besotted with the game having found from Scotland and wished to play it and found beside their camp this land that was absolutely perfect for playing golf. So that's the the genesis, if you like, uh, of of how golf really got a foothold in Ireland. But I guess one swallow doesn't make a summer. I don't think so, though, Shane. I really think it's the eighteen eighties. I think what that is, I think what that is, is is a kind of a, a more transient thing because officers are coming and going, and I know there is the gemis in the state, but that's not really the the thing. It's it's the formation of the Royal Belfast Golf Club and then the Royal Dublin Golf Club in the 1880s. And, and this really matters because these are two major cities of empire. And Belfast had grown from 15,000 people at the beginning of the 1800s to be 350,000 people at the end of it. It was as Billy Bragg, Bragg used to sing, a northern industrial town where there's red brick streets refashioned in the same way that Manchester and Liverpool with its shipyards and canals and linen industry. Cottonopolis, as Manchester was, was, was known as, remade in Belfast with all this immigrant labour coming in, but not just working class skill labour, but also really wealthy businessmen who were now plying their trade around Belfast and sought that commonality in the sports club of golf because golf and business was associated right from the beginning of that Edinburgh club and it retained that name in the development of clubs in in around England with Wentworth and everything that came with it. This was remade in Belfast and then in Dublin it was remade again and there's a brilliant newspaper report from 1885 which looks at the first holes. It's in a newspaper called Sport, a weekly newspaper that had been founded in 1881 and what it showed you was diagrams of the holes laid out in the Phoenix Park in 1885 by the Royal Dublin Club. And it was only there briefly, though, because the Phoenix Park wasn't suitable for it. It required more drainage. It was also a very public space. It had an area that was railed off for cricket and an area that was railed off for polo. But apart from that, the rest of the park, apart from the the major houses on it, Aris Anouk, the house that's now the American Embassy, and and around the Ordnance Survey. Apart from that, this was open free land. And people welly and golf balls around the place was seen to be not conducive to the idea of this I, this place as a public space. I mean maybe if we compare and contrast 
Belfast and Dublin in the mid-1880s. Um, obviously, uh, I have a confession to make, and listeners will know, I'm a member of Royal Dublin, so I have a, a vague uh, a vague interest and, and knowledge of the, the setting up of the golf club and the Scottish influence, John Lumsden and Tom Gilroy, etc., etc. But what strikes me in, initially through the, the mid-1880s and moving into the, the late 1880s and 1890s is the gene pool and the people involved in setting up golf clubs. There's a commonality of people. I'm sort of struck by somebody like Anthony Babington who would have been um, a a student in Trinity and would have become a member in Royal Dublin during his time there. But he would also have been involved in setting up Royal Belfast, Royal Port Rush, Royal County Down and seems to have struck up a friendship with Harry Colt as well and obviously Colt was involved mm. in, in, in designing or redesigning uh, many of those golf courses over the, the next 20 or 30 years. So perhaps, I mean, would you, would you say, I mean, obviously at this point in time, the, the golf market in Ireland or go- the golf family in Ireland is very, very small. So it's no great surprise that you see the same names cropping up in Belfast and Dublin and whatever else. Yeah. Well, it's a very small country, and and the people of sufficient means in the country to play golf is really limited. And what you found in golf clubs is you see you see assorted British army officers in more or less every significant golf club that was founded during these years. But beyond that, you see a kind of a an alliance of blood. That is to say, the old aristocracy, land those people who are of sufficient landed wealth to be part of the gentry and commerce, the people who'd made their money. So it's this alliance of blood, land and commerce in these early, early golf clubs and in pursuit of, 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 of the game. And if you look at, if you look at, say, for example, the, in the early 1900s, the foundation of golf clubs like Enniscorthy and, and, and of Gory, what you see in, in those clubs is someone in the gentry ordinarily taking the lead either in the provision of land or in the provision of patronage for for the building of this. And then after that, you get people who are the notables of a given area and you will get the local doctor or the local resident magistrate. And you get people of a very, very limited um, social specter walking in the doors of, of these clubs. And these people all ordinarily knew each other. And it was in these clubs that they met their wives or met their husbands. And it was a sociability which extended way beyond merely hitting a golf ball. It was a place to meet and to congregate. And it mattered. It mattered that this was a very particular class of people. And it was a network which extended around the country. It knew no boundaries of of religion and this, and this matters. This was about class rather than religion, religious divide. It, and there was a gender divide. Of course, there was a gender divide. And there is, there is, it's a really interesting thing to look at the sheer scale of the misogyny that was involved in the construction of the modern golfing world, or the modern sporting world across the, the globe, not just in Ireland, in, in the Victorian era, because sport was designed for men. And those women who did play sport were incredibly in the minority and they were of a very particular class and they were true pioneers in very much 
of what they did, but they were essentially pioneers for people of their own class. They were not pioneers leading the way and hoping to disperse, ordinarily disperse sport across the great swathe of womanhood who was being denied the opportunity. And in golf, you see, you know, these pioneers who had husbands, often had husbands already playing the game or 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 or, or parents or, or father playing the game. And you see people like uh, Mrs. Wright, kind of a, recorded as a female golfer in uh, who played at the Royal Belfast Club as early as 1887. But her husband was an officer with the Garden Highlanders. And as a split off from that club, you get in terms of the establishment of the Hollywood Ladies Golf Club in County Down and the development then of other ladies golf clubs uh, across Ireland in the 1890s. And there are separate ladies courses, as you know, that were built in in some instances, but mostly women joined men's clubs either at a reduced subscription rate or very little subscription rate um, at all. And it's interesting, though, it was competitive golf right from the beginning. Like there was open competitions from 1891. The Ladies Golf Union founded in 1892 and the first staging of the Irish Ladies Golf Championship in 1894. And then an Irish international team in 1897, which which plays against England. And then in 1899, you see Mae Heslett, that famous Irish female golfer from the end of the 19th century, became the first Irish winner of the British Ladies Amateur Championship. And this this matters, right? This matters because it is a place where women can legitimately display sporting prowess, although it is within a very, very narrow sphere. Perhaps we can take a look at the Industrial Revolution and railways in particular, and in an Irish context, how that assisted the growth of the game and getting the players from A to B be it the city centre to uh, somewhere less uh, less urban, shall we say, to play their golf. Yeah, it, it's 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 something, Shane. That's that's part of a wider revolution in in leisure time in Ireland, and indeed, it's which again apes what was happening in Britain. The building of railways, which spread out from from a city. There's trams as well. Trams matter in this as well. But railways really matter because you get the construction of seaside towns. Bray is a seaside, becomes a seaside town. Le Hinch becomes one. Kilkey becomes one. And so on. You see Yall becoming one uh, as well for people from, from, from Cork. And what you got here was the construction after the famine of a kind of a seaside culture. The idea of, so it's from this period that things like fish and chips and the invention of the postcard or punch and Judy shows and donkeys rides on the beach, all of that is constructed around a holiday culture in seaside towns in the second half of the 19th century. And it becomes a way for train companies to fill their trains on weekend days when people are not using it to go to work. So this is open for people to travel and it really matters, number one. Number two, the Industrial Revolution increasingly means there are people with disposable income. They're not just living hand to mouth. Now, I'm not trying to argue for a minute here that there isn't abject poverty. And we know that in Dublin, for instance, the scale of poverty was extraordinary right the way through into the middle decades of, of, 
of the 20th century, the inner city slums in Dublin were, 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 were truly, truly appalling. Infant mortality in the city was extraordinary, true to the first, Second World War. So, but at the same time, there were more people with more disposable income and they were spending it in leisure activities. And part of this leisure activity was not just a seaside trip, but it was also then the holiday. So you have the availability, for example, in Bray of people with houses to let. They might just let the house out for a week or they might let it out for the whole summer for people to come and play. And while they're there, they play golf. So part of the whole package of leisure is this idea of kind of healthy exercise, but not unduly taxing in the sense that it doesn't really matter if you can't take a, a shoulder or you don't really want someone kicking you. You can go and play golf. It's sport. It's relaxed. It's enjoyable. It's challenging and it's addictive. And again, a little bit of research on, on my behalf, just talking about the railways and you see sort of the setting up of Royal County Down, obviously the members of, of Royal, Royal Belfast were, were yeah. centrally involved, but so was the Belfast and County Down Railway. Uh, who, who went on and obviously to build what's now the Sleeve Donard Hotel, a splendid hotel apparently of the links at Newcastle. It's, it's 140 rooms built at a cost of £100,000. Green Ore up in um, up north, north of Dundalk, the Dundalk and Green Ore Railway Company, Royal Port Rush, the Northern Counties Railway. Even Ballybunion believed the Lartigue Rail Railway paid for some of the construction, maybe nine holes, and, and the West Clare Railway, which obviously came into town uh, in La Hinch until 1961. And even, uh, I know the Black Watch looked at Doonbeg initially as a site for a golf course, but ultimately decided on La Hinch because it did have that railway connection. Yeah, and and it makes sense, doesn't it? In a, in a, in a, in a world where the motor car had yet to insistently press its way into everyone's life and define mobility in a new way with the affordability of the car in the middle decades of the 20th century. But all of those golf courses that you mentioned demand people to be able to travel to them and also allow people to travel distances. It becomes part of a network where people, it becomes a thing to travel around Ireland and, and play in various golf courses during during these years. And of course, it's sociable. You you take the train down and in licensing laws, you could drink in train stations and you could travel. Once you traveled more than three or four miles, you're entitled to have a drink even on a Sunday. And this is this is a big thing. And you can you can see the construction of a world, people's world just growing. And it, it really it's not for golf. But travel was also hugely enhanced by, by the bicycle from the 1880s onward. And it, what, the, what this meant was people were able to travel much further than just the distance that a horse could pull them or that they could walk from the early 1880s, from the middle 1880s onwards. But the train was the true way to travel and the construction of a rail, rail timetable, even though Cork was what? 16 minutes behind Dublin in, until 1913, 1914. Ultimately, it was the construction of a railway timetable, which was important to the standardisation of time in Ireland and everything that that meant. One other element of the railways is it fostered some, some tourism. I'm sort of conscious that, that the first 
golf resort in Europe was located in Rossapena, which actually had no railway connection at the time. It was founded by Lord Leitrim and obviously old Tom Morris laid out the first golf course uh, up there. But it did have a paddle steamer connection to to Milford and onwards. So obviously when he, he came over from Scotland, he, he came by paddle steamer eventually. Yeah, and this again, it shows you there's this notion that ideas around globalization or the idea of people traveling and ideas moving is something of a product of a later age. And it's just not true. It Globalization was a slower process in the late 1800s, but it was real. And it was on these tentacles of trade and commerce and ways of living that people began to see new ways of, of, of playing games. And this idea that someone whose wealth was made or was, should be should be invested in the development of a golf course and that old Tom Morris should be the one who would be brought over to do it and they would travel by steamboat and do all of those things. It shows an interconnectedness of empire as well, which really matters. So I guess at this point, you know, we're, t- we're still sort of talking sort of 1880s, 1890s, which obviously Ireland is still part of the age of empire, uh, although we'll get to uh, we'll get to the 1916s and onwards in a, in a few minutes, I'm sure. What sort of I mean, I mean, we will come to the democratization of 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 the the makeup of memberships, but we're probably is it is safe to say we're talking about um, those that um, certainly identify as uh, subjects of the queen uh, or the king as the case may be uh, forgive me victorian would be queen uh, so are we uh, i mean i'm sort of keen to understand as as this conversation develops how the makeup of the the golf club membership changes over time oh yeah it really changes um and it's a very difficult conversation, Shane, or it's a very, very complicated, not difficult, it's a complicated conversation because ordinarily those people who were initially involved in most golf courses were unionist, unionist by bent, but there were also nationalists who were there as well. That, that doesn't mean that they were separatists, though. There were people who were considered themselves Irish, but were hi- happily Irish within the empire. And they may have wished for a home rule parliament in some instances, but they weren't looking for a republic ordinarily. Now, does that mean that there were no Republicans who played golf? Absolutely not true at all. So, for example, if you look at someone like John Burke, who was a golf caddy and future champion amateur golfer who won multiple Irish championships, he was a member of the 4th Battalion of the mid Clare uh, Brigade of the IRA and was actually involved in one of the most notorious incidents in the War of Independence, the Renine ambush from September 1920, where there were six RIC men killed. And so you have that on, on the one hand, you have you have somebody like Burke, who is, who is not really normal uh, or, or not really usual. And against that, then, you have somebody like Ernie O'Malley, the IRA man and, and writer who recalled that, Many people were were many of the Republicans were very contemptuous of golf and associated it with a, not just with Britishness but with a class. It was a class distinction. It was this was seen as being the haves and the have-nots. So they would have done stuff like dug up the greens at, at the Mullingar Golf Club in in nineteen eighteen, motivated by the fact that the club was seen as a bastion of 
British Army officers based in Westmead and the local the local um, elite who were there. And but what I think is really interesting is what happened to to golf after independence and after partition. Well, first of all, obviously, the Golfing Union of Ireland stayed uh, a, a general body, which was one thing. But what happened to golf? What happened to the number of clubs? So what was the revolution fought for? Was the revolution fought to paint the post boxes green? Was it faint? What, what was it? Was it fought to put up a new flag? Or was there to be a significant cultural change rather than just merely symbolic and political one? And of course, for many people who fought in the revolution, they at least paid lip service to the idea of the creation of a different kind of Ireland. They wished, for example, that it would be Irish speaking and that Irish music would prosper and that it would be based around a small farm communities to be made up from the breakup of, of land that was held around the country by, in, by landlords. And of course, it was to be the playing of Irish games. Now, it's quite interesting what happened with golf. There were people who claimed golf was invented in Ireland and the Scots took it from us. And this meant that in 1924, when the state organized the Talchin Games, that is this Irish Olympics, basically, to say that we had survived, and in inverted commas, 800 years of colonization and that we were a nation free once again, they staged the Irish Olympics, a bigger sporting event actually in 1924 than that year's Paris Olympics. And one of the one of the um one of the sports played in it was golf. And and there was this idea that was kind of massaged a bit to say that look, you know, the Irish were golf was fine. And Lord Dunsany was involved in in the playing of games. So there was a kind of a semi-sanction for golf. And of course, then what happened? You get this explosion of golf clubs. And here it is, between 1924 and the outbreak of the Second World War, that is to say, in a 15-year span, 71 new golf clubs were established in in Ireland. And around that were provincial branches of the Golfing Union of Ireland, the development of local, provincial and national competitions. And this provincial structure helped the development of golf. So look, for example, the Connacht branch was established in 1924. And in the decade that followed, 16 new golf clubs were established uh, across Connacht. And in the process, you have to say that the golf club became a focal point of social life in city and suburbs and in country towns for the expanding middle class of the Irish Free State. And it's really interesting as well, actually, I think, that it's not just a focal point. This golf club is not just a focal point for golf, but it, it's also kind of important to something like the spread of bridge. So bridge playing and golf clubs go hand in glove. And in the early decades of the 20th century, golf came, kind of became nurseries for for bridge uh, around these areas and also golf clubs were one of the few places outside the home where men and women could meet and play bridge or play golf together in the same space and that mattered if if we look at newspapers and media and their influence on the development and the 
development of the game, if you like. I mean, obviously, in wider terms from the early 1890s, names such as Horace Hutchinson, Bernard Darwin, John Lowe, all contributed significantly to growing the game of golf through their published musings on, on, on the game. I'm sure that the aforementioned individual efforts augment whatever local coverage existed. Uh, are there any particular characters of interest in Irish golf writing during the early decades of golf in Ireland that, that, uh, that come to mind? Not really. Uh, no, no, not really that stand out uh, in, from the research that I've done. Now, there, there are people who are more expert in, in that kind of thing than, than ever. I, I, although I will say, the best speech that I saw written by relating to golf in these years was by W.T. Cosgrave, the then first president of Ireland, who in in, in 1926 uh, spoke at the occasion of Clontarf Golf Club becoming um, a, an 18-hole course. And he stood up and he 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 gave his speech and he he it's just a great piece of writing. And he talks about how men and he was only talking about men, could enjoy relaxation in moderate healthy exercise when the day's work is done, befitting health and making himself stronger and fitter for the battle of life in the equable atmosphere of, of the clubhouse and they could play. He, he, he said that it was wrong to say that golf was just a, a game that was indulged by only the well-to-do, that it could also be the game of the common person and it is true it's really interesting if you look at the expansion of golf through the 20th century in ireland golf went from being the game of the well-to-do to something much more democratized and this was obviously particularly the case from the 1990s 1980s 1990s onwards but it's a real thing i'm struck by I guess initially going back to that Scotland's gift idea, many of the early club pros and greenkeepers, generally those two roles were probably horsed in together for for initial obvious reasons. But many of them were were expat Scots um, and certainly the, the club pros tended to be Scots, really until a gentleman called Michael Moran came along. He was born in 1886 in a cottage located on Bull Island where Royal Dublin is now located. He was the first, as, as our Aussie friends say, gun local professional. He tied third to the great John Henry Taylor in the Open Championships in 1913 at Royal Liverpool. And he would subsequently go on and join the war effort in World War I and unfortunately lose his life uh, at Le Cateau in France, I think in 1918. It's interesting to note in J.H. Taylor's uh, autobiography, Golf, My Life's Work, which was published in 1943, he said, Mike Morn, a small, wiry type of Irishman, was a fine player, and like most of his race, a rare trier and typical ent- typically enthusiastic. Mike was well-placed going into the third round. This is uh, apropos of the 1913 Open. Uh, but a gale blew that day, and Taylor takes up the story. He says, I stopped to watch Morn drive off and play around the corner. Mike was a lightweight, and it is but the exact truth to state that he found it almost impossible to stand to the ball and swing the club. I saw him play five shots before rounding the bend, and a few minutes later word came back that he'd taken a ten for the hole and his chance had virtually gone. I was sorry for Mike then, but was sorrier still when we heard some 18 months later that he'd been killed in the war when fighting as a trooper in the Irish horse. What influence or what effect did World War I have on the, the golfing public, if you like, in Ireland? Well, 
the first thing you'd have to say is that the golfing public was filled with, in terms of those men of age who were able to fight in the war, the pressure on those men to enlist was enormous. Now, some went willingly. Some just couldn't wait to go. And that's the story of the recruitment of the early months of the war. And some, though, went later. And and I, I it's, it's incredibly sad to think of the loss of life of the people from sports clubs in general in Ireland through the Great War. Their names are on plaques and walls in various places in various sports, and it's recorded in minute books. And you see that overlap. And I go back to Ennis Gorty as a case in point of Engor Boothman or Engor Hickman and um, uh, his colleague whose name escapes me at the moment, who were seen off by their clubmates to war. And, and then the next thing, the minutes record their death abroad. And the story of these letters coming back from the front of people who are describing conditions and then coming, then the letter comes back that they have been lost in often in, in, in that appalling churn of, of mud and blood and chaos um, around Theapful Wood and the numbers of Irish who were lost in that front in France is, it was devastating for in the first and foremost to the families of those people who was lost, were lost and to their friends and to the culture that existed before the war because it could never be the same again. It could never, you could never recreate what was there, the scale of the enlistment and even those who survived. And this is, this is really important to remember. Even those who survived the war and came back were fundamentally transformed by the experience of war. And their lives were never to be the same again. And this mattered and it knocked the heart out of a lot of things for a lot of people. It destroyed so many lives, so many communities. And it's a simple fact that the world that they came back to was fundamentally changed, not just by their experience of war, but also by the way what was happening in Ireland was so profoundly influential in the future of the country with the 1916 rising, the conscription crisis, a war of independence, which made some of these people out essentially to be strangers in their own land now. And so how do you separate out the influence of the war from the influence of the changing political situation at home to the in inevitable sense of the end of an era. And those things are, it's very difficult to pull them apart. I don't think there's a point in pulling them apart. They're all part of the same experience, which basically meant that for golf clubs, north and south of the border, everything was changing. So does that mean that everything did change in terms of their social lives? Well, I think it did for quite a while because there was a new meaning, a new context a new environment in which they played their game as a whole new, a divided island. And the sense of, I think, alienation 
for some people and the sense of of insecurity for others yeah i think it's sad in in many ways i mean there's there's they've kind of been forgotten to a certain degree uh absolutely i think they've been i think there's much greater memory of them now but i think it's there i don't know that they're sufficiently remembered in golf clubs i do think in rugby I think the people involved in the IRFU have done a really good job in remembering the fallen from 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 that. Even even now within the GAA, there are there's a website organized and a research project funded by the GAA to set out those numbers of GAA men who died in in the Great War, and it must be remembered, by the way, that there were more GAA men fighting in France in 1916 and than they were in the GPO. And that's, again, a fact that's inconvenient to some people's history, but it's a reality. You know, I'm struck, you know, by certainly the over the early decades of golf in Ireland, um, the amateur game was was king. Um, you mentioned John Burke and Jimmy Brune comes to mind, Cecil Ewing, a little bit later, Philomena Garvey. But I think... It, an inflection point perhaps is the Canada Cup which was hosted in Port Marnock in 1960 which was won by Arnold Palmer and Sam Sneed. I know uh, Christy O'Connor and Harry Bradshaw had won it in Mexico City in 1958 and obviously Fred Daly winning the Open Championships at Royal Liverpool in 1947 and Royal Port Rush subsequently hosting the, the Open Championship in 1951. But what can you tell us in terms of what happened post-1960 in terms of another mini-boom, I think, in terms of participation and uh, the grow for golf, if you like? I suppose the way I'd look at it is I don't really believe that the Canada Cup was the inspiration for the spread of golf. I think this was a process that was underway from 1945 through to the mid-60s where another 30 clubs were added. And then finally... In the 1970s, you get the opening of several public golf courses a century later than the same thing had happened in in England and, and Scotland. There had been attempts to open public golf courses, for example, in the Phoenix Park, again in the 1920s. There was a proposal for a public golf course. There was, by the way, a private course laid out for for uh, in the Phoenix Park in at Oris and Uchtaran in 1903 for a while, but it's later that um that was the that was the vice regal lodge at the time vice regal lodge at the time yeah. yeah um and what you got was new courses new availability but you also have an increase in disposable income and you have a growing middle class in ireland in the 60s and the 70s and it's fashionable to join golf courses and it's it's part of this aspirational middle-class thing and golf clubs are opening up a little bit there's more of them and more of them means they need more members and they're opening up a little bit i wouldn't don't want to overstate it in terms of certain clubs but in general particularly in country towns it's it becomes more open to a different type of person and it's quite a while now by the 1960s. It's 40 years on It's of, of the free state. It's 50 years since the Easter Rising. It takes a long time for social change often to happen. And then when it happens, it happens really quickly. And of course, as we all know, the arrival of the boom in the 90s 
just absolutely transformed the number of courses, 200 to 400. What a remarkable thing to know. Which is which is ironic, actually. I mean, like at the end of that, I think that the highest number of uh, courses that were affiliated with the, the GUI was 438 before yeah. the, the ass, fell out, ass fell out of the boom. You know, it, 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 it amuses me or it's ironic somewhat that a lot of that development was back on the country piles that uh, that uh, where the original golfers perhaps came from. I agree. I agree. But I, I agree. And it, it's kind of it's it's a fascinating thing to have watched. But I'd, I'd throw another thing into that conversation, and that is the construction of the golf society based in. Like almost every public house in the country seemed to have their 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 golf society and a golf outing and you you see the development of clubs that are that are just at sheer scale and just 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 great fun like the, the people got experience and exposure to a game which would would not really have been something that they might have considered previously and it opened up golf to to, to almost every section of the of, of Irish society during those years. You know, it would be wild not to mention the halcyon days of the Irish Open from 76 to approximately 1990. Combination really predominantly of Port Marnock in the main and the smattering of stations at Royal Dublin. And I remember watching, and I guess there wasn't a huge amount of golf on TV. Yeah. It might have been the, the the British Open and the Irish Open was about all you got. And maybe the world match play from, from, from Wentworth. But I mean, over the course of these staging, record crowds flocked to cheer on notable winners such as Crenshaw, Brown, Ballesteros, Langer, Alathabala, and Woosden, to name but a few. And obviously, then we we start into you know, if you think about Tim O'Mahony developing Mount Juliet and and Michael Smurfit doing something similarly similarly at the start of of the nineteen nineties, bringing Floridian resort style golf to to Kilkenny and Kildare in um, in turn um, yeah and obviously then Juliet would host two WGC events one by Els and, and Woods and obviously Michael Smurf got the Ryder Cup to the K Club in, uh, in 2006 I believe um, it's uh, I mean it, as a complete aside it's arguable to say that the, the last great Ryder Cup venue in Europe was in 1981 in Walden Heath, but that's a different story altogether. Ultimately, any particular observations of the of 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 sort of post, I uh, sorry of the of the run up and into the the Celtic Tiger, and I mean just some of the the crazy. I mean, I remember particularly Moy Valley, which was one of the last courses to open just before the the boom left town, shall we say, and that was a Darren Clark designed place down in Kildare and they came up with the idea of the Champions Club which I think was €100,000 to join they were going to have maybe 50 or 60 members and remember down there Moy Valley is a fine golf course but down visiting there uh, in a former former job in golf and there was two cars there mine and the, the GMs and that was it we we kind of lost the run of ourselves in terms of you know build it and they will come or actually build the houses and 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 build a golf course and then they'll come. Yeah, yeah. There's a whole there was a whole load of things going on then and and okay. So there's I want to start first of all with the Irish Open and that iconic. I I I I suppose I grew up in '52 now, so I grew up. I remember some of those Irish Opens states in particular, right? Dublin. I remember remember John O'Leary and I remember that 
this iconic image of the hair out in out out of uh, being being filmed in Royal Dublin, and of course, it's it's a measure of the scale of, I suppose, the change in in on the North Pole that the hair is now gone, and uh, is lost to it, and it's been really interesting. I've been I've spent the last number of months doing a research project on the North Pole and looking at the couple of hundred years of history of the North Pole, of course, which developed from the 1820s onwards, how it was the first venue of a major sporting international event in Ireland, which was a shooting competition between Ireland and America in 1875 on the exact site that became the Royal Dublin Club. And then looking at... Wow, I didn't didn't know that at all. Yeah, an amazing thing. 30,000 people came across that wooden bridge to this to this to this competition and then looking at this contest on the north ball as the north ball grew out into the sea over the course of the decades that followed and how royal dublin developed from a nine-hole course into an 18-hole course followed then by saint anne's joining and the ongoing disputes between royal dublin the Dublin Port Company, who owned the stretch of land in across, the Dublin Corporation, who owned the great swathe of the area, the day trippers who were coming out to use the beach, and the development from the 1930s of Ireland's first ever wildlife sanctuary and bird observation place in the 1930s. So you have a place where there's still shooting going on of birds while a wildlife centre is being developed. You have Hairs coming across the golf course and you have the Dublin Coursing Club allowed into the 1960s still take hairs in bags off the island. And all of this is going on in this venue that there was a huge dispute over where cars would be parked even in the 1970s. And I understand in the 60s, the the the, the corporation were potentially considering developing, essentially buying the place under compulsory purchase order and turning it into a pleasure beach, a little bit like Blackpool. No, it was actually from the 1930s that they... Thank you, Paris. It was the 1930s. They, they had this thing called the Blue Lagoon water park idea, which was to be... People will know who've ever driven that road out, the coastal road out towards... Oh, which I think that stretch of road is actually called the James Larkin Road, if I'm not mistaken, that stretch of road, which is which is kind of a, a trivia question, which may not be right. I, I could The Texaco... Uh, petrol station that's there at the bottom of the Kilbarrick Road used to be called the Blue Lagoon Station. So so along there, there was a plan from the 1930s and then resurrected in the 1940s to develop, develop that whole area as a water park and that it would be in the American style of slides and there'd be water skiing competitions and there'd be motorboats plying their trade. And it was there clearly as an idea. It was two, it had two purposes, to give employment to people in the city in the construction phase and then in the ongoing thing about it, and that it would also be a place for tourism that would draw international tourists into the area. And 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 it collapsed. But it's this idea, and I think it's really important for the future. It's this ongoing contest between golf courses built in coastal areas between the various demands on them. Number one, dedicated places of sport. Number two, seaside resorts for the people masses in general number three ecological sites of extreme importance and those three things are not are not always necessarily compatible 
and they demand they demand compromises but in the compromise somebody has to give something from what they want and i think it's a thing for the future that will will increasingly become an issue talking about the future and i know you've got to get out of here so three last questions the future of golf obviously we have the Ryder cup returning to adair manor in the not too distant future under the uh, the auspices of jp mcmanus who uh obviously owns the Sandy Lane Resort in Barbados, amongst other things. I understand, JP, um, under, I guess, when Marco Simeone, which is the Italian venue, was awarded the next Ryder Cup, as as, as it were, next year, uh, they were under a little bit of, of, a, of a cloud as to whether or not they, they could get the property finished in time. JP lodged 10 million euros or 10 million dollars into escrow, and essentially that... Uh, that Sort of uh, managed, he managed to, to, to nab the, the next European Ryder Cup as a result. But where do you see golf going in future in Ireland if, if we were using some of the lessons we've learned from golf's past? Well, I, I think the I think the challenge, I think the challenge for all sports is to remain relevant in a changing social context. So the biggest, most prosperous sport in Ireland in the early 1800s was cockfighting. By the 1850s, cockfighting was gone because social mores changed. Hunting was a massive sport in Ireland. Indeed, the word sport itself was usually usually used before 1800 to refer only to hunting or shooting and fishing and those kind of sports. And hunting has been on a long, steady march to the margins, a retreat that's been going on for a very long time. So there is no guarantee of any future for any sport. And if you doubt that, look at the fact that the Colosseum in Rome was once a thriving sporting place. Nobody could ever see the end of that Colosseum. And it turned essentially to being a relic of of what it was. The chariot races of Rome were famous in their time as a centerpiece of amazing empire and they ended. So there were no guarantees. And what we do know, however, is that the desire to hit a ball with a stick, whether it's in a fast moving game or in a static sport is something that endures. So I have no doubt that golf will, 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 will continue or a form of play will continue. I have no doubt also, by the way, that the rules will change. And that the nature of what it const- what constitutes a golf course will also change as technology changes, because so many golf courses are now incapable of holding on to the very best of golfers. And as people change, the size of the courses will demand ultimately some sort of change or revision uh, to, to accommodate these basic facts. But arguably, and golf's not been particularly good at putting a stop to the march of technology. But if you look at the likes of baseball and swimming and tennis, if you like, they don't amend their arenas. They just fix the fix the, the, the ball and the racket and the, the swimming suit, if you like. So I, I'm hopeful with the, the ongoing machinations, if you like, with the USGA and the RNA that they regulate the ball properly, hopefully. Yeah, I mean, it, I, I don't think there's a second option because it's either regulate the ball or regulate the course. Um, Correct. And uh, so so something has to change. For sure. 
I ask all of my guests the same final two questions. I wasn't sure if you're a golfer, but you assured me earlier on that you are. You might let us know what couple of courses are on your on your must play bucket list or ones you want to get back to. There's no constraints to the answer. Uh, you might just let, let us know where you have a particular penchant for. Okay, so I'm going to answer the other question you're going to ask me first, and you you asked for a recommendation for a book. Yeah. So, so two two books. They can be on golf. They can be on golf history. They can just be on Irish history, or or any book you care to mention to augment some of our listeners' libraries. Okay, so I'm going to pick a book that that is not um not got anything to do with golf or sport or anything. But I read it recently again. It's a book uh, uh, called The Leopard, which is a novel which is unputdownable. Uh, it's just simply called The Leopard. It's um it's set in Sicily. Um, many decades ago and everybody should read it um unputdownable um in terms of sports history uh and golfing history i really recommend richard holt's book sport and the british which includes in it a really good description of golf and it sets golf within the context of empire uh it's I think by a country mile, the best sports book ever, sports history book ever written. So I, I was written in 1989 and he's actually, it might be wise to hold on because he's reworking it 30 years on, 33 years on, and it will be published again next year uh, in a revised edition. So people should keep an eye out for that when it comes out in a couple of years time. Um, in terms of golfers, it is, it is, um, uh, it is, an absolute stretch for me to say that I'm a golfer. Um, I play very, very infrequently. Um, and I'm talking about once or twice a year at the very most. And years have passed where I haven't been able to play, but I do have a bucket list. Um, I, I want to play, uh, I'm from the rural area of Tullamore Parish, part of called Doral. Um, and the Esker that runs through Doral runs on down and across through Balnamere and is where Esker Hills is based. And it's about six kilometers from seven kilometers from where I'm, I live or where, where my, my home place is uh, in Offaly where my parents are. And I played Esker Hills only once. Um, it was, it was an amazing experience. I loved every bit of it. Um, but I need to go back because I lost 11 golf balls. On the uh, on the round, it was uh, chaos, um, and uh, it's not the fault of bad eyesight that I I I couldn't find them. I couldn't find them. Um, the second course that I want to play again is I love Enniscrown, the golf course. Um, I just think it's an amazing experience to play it. It's funny enough, even though I'm a hacker, uh, and basically a hurler with a with a golf club. I could actually play fairly well there because I don't really know why, um, but I was able to do... It just suits your eye. It suits my eye, yeah. It's, it's, it's And I don't even know why that is the case. It just I just feel good there. And um, I haven't played it now for eight or ten years. Played for ten years, actually. Um, used to go on holidays there with with kids quite a while ago now and it was that was brilliant and the third place i would love to play a lot and i'll leave it at this one is a place that i can't play anymore because it doesn't exist anymore and it's castle barna golf club in dangan county offley and castle barna golf club is 
um, the place where I have to say I fell in love with golf uh, and playing golf. It was something in my mid-20s working in the newspaper in Tullamore that I was able to skive off in the middle of days with work done, head out there either on my own or go out with friends who I played with and some of the best, most brutal abuse that I've ever received uh, has been from friends and that. And it, 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 I think probably the high point of my golfing career happened in the ninth on Castle Barna. And if anybody who's played Castle Barna um, knows that the ninth was a short hole, less than a hundred yards that ran along the canal in Dangan in County Offaly. And I stood in that tee um, in the Tullamore GA Club Golf Classic uh, with a couple of my best friends, Joe Hughes, Ken Furlong, my brother, John. And um, they were fairly clear where the ball was going and it was water all the way. Um, and I was determined not to put it in the water. And of course, this is such a predictable story that I um, I hit the ball quite beautifully. Yes, I did. And I hooked it magnificently over the uh, over the green and um, into the car park. And it landed on the roof of the club captain's car just as he was getting out of the car. It was as if a bomb had detonated, is how he described it. And um, so it's a, it's it's it made the local papers um, due to the great assistance when fellas I was with they were so happy for me that it uh, it's 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 a course that just had so much fun on. And I bitterly regret the fact that it's not there anymore. Paul, just finally, before we let you go, and many, many thanks for your time, you might let listeners know how they can perhaps keep tabs on your writing and your musings and your interviews. Um, uh, I know you write for the Irish Examiner. I certainly used to. Yeah, I do still. Yeah, we'll write a weekly column for the Examiner. Very regular appearances on Off the Ball with uh, Joe Malloy, which are uh, which are great. Um, are you on uh, social media or anything mad like that? No, I'm not. I I I I I'm not on social media. I I prefer to live. You're dead right. Uh, and I I just don't want to live through a screen. I have to work enough on the screen, and I don't want to have to live through a screen. I'm not on Facebook. I'm not on Twitter. I'm, I suppose people do you consider WhatsApp social media? I don't know. But I'm not on any of those platforms, and I hope to manage my life in such a way that I never have to be. Well, well, keep it up. Professor Paul Rouse, it's been an absolute pleasure. Thank you very much for sharing your expertise uh, this evening. And uh, go easy. Thanks a million for having me, Shane. I really enjoyed it. Thank you. No problem, mate. Thank you. Many thanks for tuning in. As usual, you can find us online at firmandfast.golf or on Twitter at FirmanFastGolf. Please continue to like, subscribe, and comment. It really is appreciated. Until the next time, happy golfing. <laughs>